is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. Microsoft hitting delete on some 10,000 workers. It's the latest company to scale back its pandemic-era expansions. So we'll go in-depth into what this round of layoffs and others will do to the tech industry moving forward. Many workers fortunate enough to still have their jobs have the option to work from home. Companies are warming up to the idea, but will it really be better to stay home and work from there moving forward? May not be what you think, by the way. And we will have the latest from Ukraine on recent war uh, war developments and which side is making progress. When uh, you hear the terms atmospheric river and bomb cyclone when talking about storms, is it a little too much? Do all these uh, terms and jargon lose meanings? We'll get into how these weather storms might do more harm than good. The Corvette, an icon and symbol of American automotive ingenuity. It is a little different now and just might be better than the original versions. And do you know, by the way, how long ago the original came out? I do not. 70 years ago. That long. 70 years. Incredible. Yeah, wow. We start with the Microsoft layoffs and what it means for the tech industry. Michael Gibbs, CEO of GoCloud Careers, that's a global organization that provides training for elite cloud computing careers. Michael, thanks for being with us. I'm thankful to be here with you today. So Microsoft, and before Microsoft, it was uh, the parent company of Facebook, and then it was also Amazon, and it was also uh, Twitter with Elon Musk. So the list goes on and on. What is actually happening with the tech industry? So there's a few things that are going on. Let's first look at the macroeconomic environment. We're in a period of extremely high inflation combined with high interest rates. We add some additional economic disruptions, such as the housing industry, which has been pulling back significantly. And now we're facing an inverted yield curve, specifically between the three and 10-year treasuries, which all these factors point to a recession. So all of these organizations have great economists and a great economics team, and they're planning for the future. And they're saying we must be able to weather this storm. So what they typically do in these environments is they cut parts of their workforce, jobs that can easily be outsourced or replaced with technology or by getting rid of low performers. But, you know, we see a lot of interesting things going on at the same time. Now, Microsoft is investing strategically in technologies such as artificial intelligence and ChatGPT, which I'll tell you about in a minute. And this will not only cut costs, but be able to dramatically improve the organization's output and their productivity at the same time. Well, let me let me ask you, you talk about investing in, in uh, new technologies. Will those new technologies at some point down the road uh, make it necessary to hire some more workers and replace those jobs that were lost? Well, yes and no. So... What ChatGPT can do right now, and we're only at the infancy, is it can code, for example, or we can take one really solid programmer and give them a tool like ChatGPT, and they can provide the output of 10 or more programmers. So what we also see is those hands-on engineering positions where people manually do things. ChatGPT can do that. By the, so, by the way, I'm going to interrupt only so that our, our listeners who might not know what you're talking about is a artificial intelligence. Uh, is it an app or a website? How would you describe it, actually? Well, I mean, it's a technology. that or technology. Looking at things that have been done in the past, being able to research and being able to take that information and then manually do things. So ChatGPT, for example, can write blogs. It can make social media posts. 
It could do things that take manual human intervention. So typical jobs that don't require a lot of communication skills and leadership skills, executive presence and emotional intelligence, and those higher functioning skills, they can be replaced. So, you know, it's really interesting. We see a loss of a lot of the engineering jobs, but at the same time, architecture jobs such as cloud architects and enterprise architects, we see them getting much bigger because people in these roles, what they do is they advise organizations, how can they leverage technology to be more to be more efficient? So professionals in this world, and I have 25 years experience in architecture, we meet with these clients, we ask them about their business, we examine their people, their processes and technologies, and then we find ways to make them more efficient. So what we see is a lot of loss of the lower level technical jobs. And there will be a creation of some extremely high-level technical jobs, but at the same time, there will also be a need for people that can marry the human side of things, which artificial intelligence can't do, and the people and sales. So, you know, it's interesting. We we're training architects and engineers, and about six months ago, we stopped training engineers completely. We said there's no future for engineers. There's a future for people that understand business, technology, and the human side of things. All right. Is coming. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, we're going to leave it there. Michael Gibbs, CEO of Go Cloud Careers, talking about Microsoft getting ready to lay off uh, some workers. Right now, though, more companies are getting comfortable with employees working from home, either permanently or, you know, some of the time. In fact, some are even uh, rebranding hybrid work by using terms like, I love this, flex with purpose. That sounds like so that? nice. Yes. How would yeah. you like to flex with purpose? <laughs> <laughs> the last time I did that, I got in trouble. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, this does have us wondering if companies are going to be uh, even more sort of vigilant to ensure productivity from those working at home. Joining us now is Kim Garstein, who is a workplace expert for talent solutions and business consulting firm Robert Half. Kim, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So uh, I know I've read in the past that some companies are using, you know, things on home computers if you're working for them anyway. So they can sort of make sure that you're actually at the computer doing your job and not at the fridge grabbing a beer. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that something that we are seeing happening more or, or likely to see happening more as more and more people do apparently work from home? You know, it's a good question. I, th I think it really depends on the employer. Uh, you're always going to have those employers that are going to micromanage. But what I would say is that a good employee is a good employee, whether they're working at home, whether they're working hybrid, or whether they're working on site. And I think the, the key word here is really trust. And where we see organizations really flourish with a remote or hybrid workforce is those employers that trust that their employees are going to get the job done no matter what. And that's where we, we really see the most success for implementing these, um, you know, remote or hybrid work solutions. It seems to me like uh, corporations and businesses are looking at this trend and they, they realize, well, it's, it's here to stay. It's not going to go away. So if the worker wants to work from home, the trade-off that the corporation and the business wants to offer is you can work from home, yes, but you have to allow us into your home and you lose a little bit of privacy. If, if that is how it's going to kind of shake out, do you think that's something that workers might uh, accede to? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, you know, a lot of companies have tracking on how many calls you make, how many, you know, how, how the work productivity. And I think 
you know, again, whether or not companies have those tracking devices, in a short period of time, firms are going to see whether their employees are getting their work done. And if, if an employee feels like they are being too micromanaged, this might give them a reason to, to start to look for, for more work. Um, so I think that's something that employers have to be careful with um, in terms of implementing too, uh, too many, you know, uh, you know things that, that really monitor work and feel like somebody's being micromanaged. You know, uh, people in this country tend to not like to either think about or talk about the fact that we kind of do have a a class structure, perhaps not as distinct as, say, in the U.K., but we do. And we've always had this division between blue-collar workers and white-collar workers. Do we now have this sort of third division of workers who have the luxury of working from home, which, let's face it, is more comfortable than probably going into an office, but not everyone can do that. Yes, it's very true. And and your point is a good one. I mean, there certainly are roles that can be done fully remotely. You know, I think of IT positions. Many of those jobs now are fully remote. Accounting to some extent, those jobs can be remote. Customer service. I mean, that really is a fully remote job. But as you look at things like facilities work or reception where you have customers or clients coming into an office, those jobs are harder to to extend remote or hybrid flexibilities to employees. Absolutely. You know, it's an interesting thought to consider that as uh, working from home becomes more prevalent, this might provide an opportunity uh, for some people who might have difficulty going to work and working around other people because they have uh, certain uh, problems through no fault of their own where they have difficulty dealing with others face to face. But they may find they have a lot of talent and can make a company a lot of money because they're able to work from home in an environment that they feel safe. Do you think we'll see more of that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think at the end of the day, what we're really seeing is that um, employees want flexibility. And as a matter of fact, um, one of the recent surveys that we did showed that 46% of employees are currently looking uh, or plan to look for a new role in the first half of 2023. And as a matter of fact, that's up 41% from six months ago. And I think the key there is that employees are really looking for greater flexibility to choose when and where they work. So to me, that's a very high number. And I think that's something that will be interesting to see how that shakes out over the next six months. I'm wondering if you know of any other sort of euphemisms that they've come up with for this working from home. We mentioned flex with purpose, which I don't know, sounds kind of weird. But uh, mm-hmm. are there other phrases that they're, they're now using to get across the point that you can work from home? Yeah, I mean, I think hybrid is probably the most common one that we see here specifically in Los Angeles. Um, you know, I know our firm has a, you know, a phrase that we use and it's in person with a purpose. And so... Wait, wait, wait. You wait. Know, in, we, what is that? In person? In person, person with, with a purpose. With a purpose. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think yeah. I like that. I like that better than flex. With yeah, flex with purpose sounds like something you could really get in trouble for. <laughs> Right. Good good point. Good point. Um, But yeah, I think what we find with our employees and what we see with many other of our, you know, client customers out there is when people go into an office, they want there to be a purpose. And this can be something, you know, just to socialize. This can be a team building effort. But, um, you know, specifically with traffic in Los Angeles, right, you you, if you're driving into an office, you want to make sure that there's a good reason behind that. Why am I here? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's the question we ask every day. (laughs) Every day we ask that. Kim Garstein, uh, workplace expert for Talent Solutions and business consulting firm Robert Half. We were saying that just before the show began. Remember we said, why why are we here? Are we here?
Now, coming up, certain words and phrases, you know, they can grab your attention when talking about the weather, but are they being overused and maybe harming the public? And a very beloved American sports car is changing, and it's changing in a big and maybe better way. Right now, though, officials in Ukraine say a helicopter carrying the country's interior minister and some other government officials crashed into a kindergarten in suburban Kiev, killing him and about a dozen other people. This came uh, before President Zelensky spoke today to the World Economic Forum, asking for more help to fight Russia. Phil Edner is back with us. He's a journalist in Kiev, just got back from the Donbass region where much of the fighting is happening. Thank you uh, so much for uh, joining us today. We do appreciate it. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about uh, the, the morale and the feeling on the ground in the wake of this helicopter crash? It seems to have affected them uh, more than some other incidents that have happened. Well, it's a real blow. Uh, losing the interior minister uh, at a time of war when one of the objectives of the Russians is to knock out the power grid um, will effectively uh, hamper uh, efforts to maintain the power grid. But it's also just coming after, well, now nearly a year of war when people's emotions are, are running high. And while it doesn't look like the uh, war itself uh, was any part of this uh, helicopter crash. The sheer fact that the interior minister was so uh, busy and, uh, you know, like so many people in this country, working uh, as hard as they can to keep things ticking over here, um, you know, the fact he was even in that helicopter to begin with uh, has a lot of people saying, you know, it may not have been a direct cause uh, you know, nobody shot it down, but the fact he was in a helicopter uh, and that people are working so hard and, and maybe something got missed in, say, maintenance or what have you, um, that, that it might be a tertiary effect of, of the conflict. Phil, is there any kind of breakthrough on the horizon at all? Not really. No, sadly to say. Um, I, as you mentioned, I was just out in the Donbass. I was um, on the border of the uh, small town in the Bakhmut region called Solodar, where, where Russian forces do seem to have gained an advantage. Um, but uh, the, the atmosphere, the attitude of the Ukrainian military out there um, has just simply been, well, this is just another phase in the war. They are, they are performing their duties, uh, as far as I could tell, in a disciplined and professional manner. And it was basically just a, a, a general attitude of, of oh, we're going to have to readjust the lines now. We will reestablish our defensive posture. Um, no panic, no sense of uh, defeat, uh, certainly not a route of any measure. But, uh, you know, the, the Russians did gain some ground recently, but it's expected that they will probably consolidate their hold. And, and at some point, um, the war will go back into a, a phase of maneuver. But it looks like for right now, both sides are solidifying things. Uh, and uh, from what I saw on the Ukrainian side, uh, at least, there was a general sense of, you know, this is just something we have to do. We have to deal with. We will we will conduct the war 
Um, but w- there was no there was no real sense of uh, of panic or defeat. Phil, uh, there is a slight change in some of the rhetoric being used uh, from the U.S. And, and some of our allies, where the where the leaders here in America uh, continue to say things: Ukraine must not lose. Uh, but some other world leaders, some of our allies, are now changing that a little bit, and they're saying something. Uh, to the effect that, uh, no, Russia must lose, Ukraine must win, which seems like a small difference that's not a difference, but it, politically and diplomatically it is. Does that kind of talk uh, help Ukraine on the ground, and do you get a sense of, uh, of any kind of response from Ukrainians there about this uh, maybe changing this rhetoric to be a little bit more direct and stronger? Well, I mean, Ukrainians are always heartened to hear that that the international community, Western Europe, uh, the United States, what have you, uh, still support them. Uh, the The thing that I hear most from many Ukrainians is why is this sort of a piecemeal, uh, drip by drip um, uh, support for us? We know what we need. The Ukrainians say. I mean, even the the commander of the armed forces here, General Zaluzhny, has outlined quite clearly what what kind of equipment he would like to receive in order to push Russia back to maybe even the 2014 uh, borders. But what frustrates a lot of of Ukrainians is is the fact that it isn't—they know what they need, and they they want to get it, so they get the job done, and and by so doing, end the war as quickly as possible— their impression is that the war must be won. And so they, they, you know, when we see like an explosion over the weekend that we saw down in, out in the east called Dnieper, where, you know, an, an apartment building was just decimated and the tragedy of that. And then so you hear a response from the international community, well, we must send more anti-aircraft, you know, defensive measures. You know, it's, it's you know, we see one or two things, you know, something happens situationally, and the decision is, okay, well, let's send a few more, you know, let's send, send some armored vehicles or some right. tanks or something. It's the drip by drip that uh, the Ukrainians are frustrated with. Right. They'd like to have it all at once so they can finish this war. Thank you so much. Uh, journalist uh, Phil Ender uh, calling us from Ukraine today. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Felton. All right, we just got through uh, a series of storms, uh, rainstorms. In fact, uh, much of the country has been hit with storms over the past few weeks. Local weather forecasters have been using these terms to describe the events. Atmospheric river. Bombogenesis. Bomb cyclone. Atmospheric rivers. Pineapple express. Bomb cyclone. (laughs) Well, bomb cyclone, atmospheric rivers, certainly they get people's attention. But are we going overboard maybe with using these terms and... Did they kind of lose their true meaning? Alex Tardy is a warning coordination meteorologist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in San Diego. Alex, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me on there. So it is, you know, when we just played that that sort of uh, compilation of of these terms, you know, uh, atmospheric river bomb cyclone, it, it does sound kind of weird and, and funny, although certainly the results are far from that. But uh, to the point of what we were saying in the lead-in, are we overusing this, and and with what potential impact do you think? Yeah, I I think I agree with what you're saying. You know, and I watch the news, and I hear those different terminologies as well. 
and they are meteorological per se. You know, they're scientific based and they're accurate. But the bottom line a lot of times is, you know, what is our message and are people responding to the message? If that helps them respond and they take shelter, they take action, they prepare better, then maybe those words are good. Um, if that just distracts and adds to fluff uh, about the message of heavy rains coming to California, maybe they're not so good uh, and maybe they can be overused. So we're trying to basically figure out, you know, what's the best way to message that this is unusual, not ordinary, and that there potentially is high dangerous impact from these type of storms. You know, I, I think bomb cyclone would certainly get that job done because it sounds like a scary thing. If I hear that a bomb cyclone is coming, I'm going to be like, how deep do I need to bury myself in the earth to be safe? Uh, but when I grew up in Florida, we used to, we get hurricanes all the time. And so you, we watch, watch the, the local TV station, weather people uh, talk about the hurricanes. And all of a sudden, one year, they began talking about feeder bands, feeder band this, feeder band that. And we, we had never heard the term before. We weren't quite sure what it means. So while bomb cyclone might get the job done in telling people, hey, this is serious, things like feeder bands and occluded what, 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 front. What is a feeder band? It's something to do with a hurricane, oh, uh, okay. like uh, the arms of the hurricane coming <laughs> okay. in. And then occluded front, you know, uh, like I'm supposed to be worried about that. So uh, is there maybe a move underway with, with whether people have to relate this information to 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 regular people who don't understand meteorological science? So how do they get this information to us? Yeah, um, I lived in Texas, and we heard about the feeder bands or the outside spiral bands that were coming up from the hurricane. New England, we heard about the nor'easter bombing out. So the bomb cyclone is such a technical term that, you know, to me, I think it's overkill. It relates to pressure gradients and how strong the wind blows and not related to rainfall. Um, And so when rain is your main problem and concern, uh, with wind being secondary, you know, the bomb cyclone maybe can take it away. Um, The Pineapple Express, you had that in your opening. That one always seemed to signal, okay, it's really mild. It's really juicy. It's coming from Hawaii. Uh, So, you know, watch It sounds pleasant, doesn't it? (laughs) It does. I think the social scientists are the ones, you know, that might have the best answer. Um, But other times, maybe we just need to say, it's going to rain really hard, (laughs) excessively hard, too much, and there's going to be flooding in some areas. Yeah, you know, I was going to say, I, I mean, it, what was the point when all of this terminology started creeping into the common language? And and was it, do you think, because, I mean, let's face it, uh, you know, television, radio, they, they want to get ratings. Newspapers want to have uh, readers. And it does a headline that says bomb cyclone is much more likely probably to to sell a, a paper, for example, than a headline that says heavy rain coming. Uh, but when did this start? Because I, I grew up, Rob grew up in Florida. I grew yeah. up in, in New York. Uh, but I remember, you know, heavy rain, heavy snow. I don't remember all this stuff about bomb cyclones and atmospheric rivers and pineapple expressions. You couldn't even buy a pineapple in New York when I was growing up. <laughs> yeah, I think... Um... Social media, so like when Twitter and Facebook blossomed around 2010, uh, that's really when I started hearing it. In the scientific community, there was talk prior to that about atmospheric rivers, and certainly Pineapple Express is going back into the 90s when I lived in Sacramento. Um, When I grew up in the East Coast, 
you know, it was just El Nino and La Nina talking about storms. So maybe it's just kind of natural that we jump from term to term because they're very scientific, they're catchy, um, but they don't necessarily um, signal, you know, exactly what's going to occur or how threatening or unusual it is. Now, the scientific community is working on a scale. So if you like scales, like with hurricanes, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah. Um, they're working on a scale with atmospheric rivers. So maybe oh, that will help. I don't know. <laughs> well, here's one uh, before we go. A quick opportunity, Alex, to, to start a trend. Is there a meteorological name for a common event that is not at the current time in popular usage that we could start right here now? <laughs> <laughs> a meteorological yeah um it's probably too boring no, it's no. an extended pacific jet stream pointed at california no you're right that's I mean, boring yeah no, that's boring yeah. <laughs> no yeah no let's yeah, call that a rain vitamin smoothie <laughs> that's alex tardy a warning coordination meteorologist with the national oceanic and atmospheric administration and do uh understand there is a warning of a Rainstorm vitamin smoothie headed our way. Yeah, but not a pineapple express. No, we don't get those. No, no. Okay, so you think of sports cars. Maybe you think of a Corvette. And if that's what you're thinking, you probably imagine it just kind of roaring down the road with a V. I'm trying to do my impression of yeah. a Corvette. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, with a... <laughs> that's... That's not bad. Yeah, thank uh, you. I, I don't know if that sounds quite like a V8 engine, but <laughs> but it's. Let me hear it one more time. What is it? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's a little mini bike. <laughs> the newest Corvette will uh, still have a big V8 engine, but it's also going to get an electric motor. Now, this new model is called an E Ray. Sorry, I hurt my throat. <clears throat> and it's a hybrid that could end up being a game changer. With us now is Mike Strong, managing editor for the DetroitBureau.com, which covers the automotive world. Thank you so much for joining us. So this uh, new E-Ray uh, Corvette. Now, as I understand it, uh, if you have a hybrid with a with a gas motor and, and an electric motor together and the batteries that you got to put in the thing, that adds to the weight of the car. Uh, does that weight in this Corvette? make that much of a difference and how fast will this corvette go compared to the regular old uh, classic v8 that we all know and love well first of all if your v8 sounds like that noise that you made you should probably take it in for repair <laughs> okay thanks <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh secondly it does add a little bit of weight it adds about 200 pounds uh, but when you're talking about you know a total of 655 horsepower what's 200 pounds it's not that yeah, much that's true <laughs> it's gonna do zero to 60 in two and a half seconds you know, wait, wait, zero, zero, you know, zero to be... 60. Hold on. You said zero to 60 in two and a half seconds. Yes. Well, if it's in L.A., that's not possible. But <laughs> but anywhere else, that's pretty that's really fast, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Well, considering the uh, next fastest Corvette uh, does that in about two and a half, uh, about two point nine seconds. It's a substantive improvement. Uh, you know, if you you know need to make it to the next stoplight in L.A. really, really quickly, it's good to have that extra four tenths in your pocket. <laughs> All right. So we're making this evolution uh, to more electric uh, hybrid vehicles. Is there at some point down the road that uh, they might be thinking of doing a Corvette as a full electric? Oh, they're not thinking about it. They're doing it. When, how far um, away is that? Uh, 2025 is what it seems like is going to be the, uh, the landing time for that. It's probably going to be called the Zora, which is uh, named after the originator of the Corvette, Zora Arcus Duntov, back in the 50s. Um, it's supposed to put out about 1,000 horsepower. 1,000 uh, horsepower? 
Yes, a thousand horsepower. So I think that's zero to sixty in uh, negative time. I'm not quite certain how they <laughs> you they keep travel. the wheels from spinning off. The yeah, I don't know if, uh, how they keep the wheels from spinning off of the axles there. But uh, if there's a will and there's money, there's a way. Now, now these aren't the kind of cars that you would get at a at a like at a Hertz. Uh, how expensive are these cars? Well, the price for the new one is going to start at about one hundred four thousand dollars, and then you'll be able to add a few things to it there. Probably take it well above one twenty, and that's before any dealer markup that we're all so familiar with in the auto world these days. If you want a Corvette uh, convertible uh, hybrid, then you're going to need to add about another seven thousand dollars. So, so this is a very expensive machine. Well, relative to the base Corvette, which you can you know pick up for you know somewhere around sixty or seventy thousand dollars, when you compare it to European competitors, well, it's it's a bargain. Now, I noticed when I had uh, I had a plug-in hybrid a few years ago, so it basically was the the in-between world between a hybrid and a full-on electric car. So uh, when I was fully charged, it drove solely on the electric engine, and I noticed it had a much faster pickup than that car that I had in a gas engine a few years before that. So is that the case with the new uh, electric uh, Corvette, these electric cars coming down the road with these sports cars will have even more pickup? And why is that? Why why is the pickup feel better in an electric motor than a gas engine? Uh, well, if you're just talking about purely an electric motor, um, you get all the torque right away. You know, Think about if you've ever been in a golf car. When you put your foot to the floor, you, you're always thrown backwards. That's because the motor spools up right away, whereas in uh, a gas engine, you have to wait for it to churn up and the pistons to fire and and everything else. And the reason why they use these two uh, engines and motors in concert is that the smaller electric motor will give you that torque right away, which allows time for the much bigger gas engine, you know, the V8 to come in and provide the extra power that you need once you get past that initial torque uh, band for the electric motor. You know, when I think of so the case, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, so, so in the case of the, uh, yeah, in, in the case of many hybrids, you know, you can drive an electric only mode for 20, 25, even 30 miles, and then it will switch you over to gas. Uh, but in the case of the Cor- the new Corvette hybrid, that's not going to be true. It's probably only going to about three or four miles uh, in electric only mode. You'll be limited to 45 miles an hour or so. That really small battery pack with that electric motor is really designed to get you that extra, that extra speed off the line. You know, when I think of uh, sports cars, I, I think of really manual transmissions. Uh, but I also I have this in the back of my mind that am I right that hybrid cars and all electric cars they don't really have transmissions, do they? In the sense of of what we normally think of in a all gas powered car having a transmission, or am I wrong about that? No, you're correct. Your perception that's accurate. Uh, although they are engineering a an automatic, or I mean, a manual transmission for a lot of these vehicles. In fact, uh, Dodge's new Daytona, which is going to replace the uh, Charger and uh, Challenger line, they have a full you know manual transmission in it, and it works. It's supposed to work. I, none of us have driven it yet. But okay, but what? But it's why supposed do, to work? Why do hybrids just like and, a manual? Why do hybrids and electric cars don't have a a transmission? No gears. It's oh, just push it and go. And there <laughs> you go. Yeah. Huh. All right, uh, Mike Strong, uh, managing uh, editor for the uh, DetroitBureau.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Charles, how much of a raise would you need to get an E-Ray Corvette? 2,000%. <laughs> but, but, you know, you, you did before your impression, uh, apparently, according to him, not successful. No, no, not of good. a V8 engine. Yeah. I bet you can't do one off a, off a hybrid. 
Here we go. No, 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 don't try. No, here we go. Oh, no, no. That's the electric motor part. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty quiet. Okay. (laughs) That is today's uh, KNX in depth. We'll be back tomorrow. You scared me there. (laughs) You scared me. We saw dead air. Yeah. Uh, At uh, 1 p.m., we'll have more KNX in depth.